I think we've got what we've got. Um, and welcome everybody to another edition of Ask a Silicon Valley Lawyer. Um, we are joined by uh, expert uh, Silicon Valley guy, Brett Waters, who uh, runs the Fourthly Accelerator, uh, who I've known for a decade and is a wealth of knowledge, who teaches a course on entrepreneurship at, at Stanford and uh, an awesome eater of uh, fish tacos. Absolutely. And uh, along with him is my good friend, uh, Brian McAllister, who uh, can bring to us the perspective of both lawyer and, uh, and uh, uh, entrepreneur founder. And uh, unfortunately, uh, our good friend and colleague, uh, Nicole Hatcher, appears to be um, uh, blocked with, uh, with Zoom school. So we're, we're going to just apologize for that and uh, get started. Um, so with that, um, I, I'm going to uh, ask each of uh, Brett and Brian just to say a few words about themselves and what they do. Thanks, Louis. <clears throat> so I'm Brett Waters. I have been in Silicon Valley my whole life. I grew up in Los Gatos, uh, kind of lived the Silicon Valley uh, thing, having started a few companies, raising capital and all that stuff. And today I teach entrepreneurship at Stanford and I run a startup accelerator called Fourthly. And I'm happy to be here. Hey, thank you, Brett. Great shirt, by the way. Uh, Brian, over to I you. Dressed, I dressed up just for you today, Louis. I feel like the underdressed one today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, hi, guys. I'm uh, Brian McAllister, uh, MBL counsel. Uh, I uh, have a, a boutique corporate practice that represents entrepreneurs, startups, executives, and the investors who invest in and support those companies um, and that ecosystem. Um, I've been in uh, the Silicon Valley most of my life with a few stints in Los Angeles, Hong Kong. Um, I bring kind of a, a perspective here from you know, a decade in big law representing uh, corporate, corporate uh, clients, both from an M&A, uh, stock issuance, just general corporate perspective, uh, in-house at a large public company as deputy general counsel for another decade, and then also running corporate development corporate development in Asia Pacific for that company for a few years, and then ultimately going uh, out and doing my own real estate tech startup, kind of playing the founder role, uh, spent a few years doing that. And so uh, when we talk about this, I kind of have the perspective of uh, advisor, investor, acquirer, and uh, founder, at least for a brief illustrious uh, few years. It was very illustrious, Brian, and uh, I'll invest in you any day of the week. Um, also with us is uh, the very awesome Kate Mamiko, who helps us put these uh, webinars together. Um, I'd encourage folks to use the Q&A function uh, to ask questions, make it interactive, chat, um, uh, do a shout out and tell us uh, where you are uh, dialing in from today. Uh, in this age of work from anywhere. Uh, and, and before we get started, I just want to set the stage. In front of you is an agenda slide. And um, really what we wanted to talk about last week was founder equity and getting it right from the start. And this week is the second part of this two-part series. And we wanted to talk about what happens when things change. Um, and uh, we've got a great program ahead of us for the next 50 minutes. Uh, we're going to start with a quick recap from last week. Um, Brett, I'm going to ask you to set the stage about how the, the various fact patterns and power dynamics evolve over time. Um, we're then going to talk about founder breakups. It's hard to do. 
Um, we're then going to talk about what can be adjusted over time, what, what outcomes get produced in M&A, and if we have time, what happens next, which hopefully is everyone gets along. And, and finally, uh, we'll wrap up uh, with the Q&A. So, um, you know, with that, um, Brian, why don't you give us a quick recap of uh, what we, what we kind of talked about last week in, in a, a minute or less. You got it. Um, so, you know, last week was really all about, as, as Luis mentioned, kind of setting the stage, Founder, founders kind of getting together, starting a company, getting the equity right from the beginning. Um, and, the, you know, the first piece of that is how do the co-founders share the equity? Um, the, the quick and easy way is you just kind of do either back of the napkin or a math that takes the 100% and divides by a number or have some difficult conversations around who should get more. Um, there is, we talked about last week, there's a better way or maybe a more rational method, uh, methodology to approach that where you kind of look specifically at contributions uh, that each founder brings to the table. The roles they're going to play. What's their domain expertise? Is money coming in from one of them? Is everybody full-time or are some people still working, you know, their jobs and they're doing this part-time? You kind of you take all that into play and you can start building a, a point or weighting system and you can get to a more rational conversation around percentages that at least is a better starting point and allows you to step away from personalities and maybe, you know, offending people and kind of be able to point to a rationale that gives you some cover for the numbers that are being thrown around. That's probably still just a starting point for the conversation. It's a negotiation at the end of the day, but it's a good way to um, approach it. Um, we talked about the types of startup equity. Uh, early on, founders typically take common stock. The employees take common stock. Um, your, your equity incentive plan is based on common stock. Um, the uh, preferred stock is typically issued when you have your first uh, significant investors, uh, VCs, or um, just a, a large, larger round. Um, and, and then who gets it? It's, uh, as we mentioned, founders are typically getting common stock occasionally uh, preferred stock, but that's pretty rare. Um, advisors, you know, early on, you may have technical or strategic advisors, and often they're getting uh, a grant under the equity incentive plan or a warrant for common stock um, if, uh, if it's the, the right situation. Um, your investors are getting preferred stock, and, and you may be doing deals with lenders or uh, vendors where you may be issuing common stock to them as well. Thanks, Brian. Um, and, it, and really what we're talking about here is, is this theme that I, I think we keep going at uh, week after week as we do these webinars. And that's that startups have really these critical problems right at formation where they have to make some of the most important decisions uh, that there, there are to be made. And it's just at the time when you probably have no money and uh, you haven't made all that many friends just yet. And so um, I, I want folks to really think about reaching out to experts like uh, Brett and Brian as, as they think about uh, getting off the ground. And obviously, I'm Louis Lowe from L2 Council, and I, and I love to help founders as well, and, and so does Nicole, and so does Kate. Um, you know, Brett does it from his accelerator and his Stanford course, and, and uh, the rest of us do it from a law practice. Um, I've, I, I also have a thesis that startups have two other big problems, which is a finance function and a fundraising process that makes sense. And, and we try and help our, all, of, all of us here on this call help our startups get connected to those people as well, even though we may not be uh, 
fundraisers or, or CFOs. Um, so, you know, that, that was last week. And, you know, this week we wanted to talk about what happens uh, down the road after, uh, you know, your company is formed and, and hopefully you've gotten some financing. And, and, and Brad, I wanted to turn it over to you and tell us about just kind of how do the fact patterns and the power dynamics evolve? Well, they evolve um, generally gradually and become increasingly profound. <laughs> Obvious, obviously, the big switch is when you go from, uh, uh, from being an early stage company where there are no outside investors or no outside shareholders, which is kind of typically how it always begins. Um, and then once you have outside shareholders, um, then the dynamic begins to change. Um, I was just thinking as Brian was talking, I was just thinking about the first time I raised venture funding um, and they told me that I would have to put my shares on the besting schedule. And my reaction was, no, I, I already own those shares. I founded the company and, you know, and the VC firm said, said, yeah, well, you know, you're going to put them in a vesting schedule. And, and I was like incensed that they get preferred shares and own them all now. And I, as the founder of the company, <laughs> get common shares in a vesting schedule. <laughs> and that's a lesson into how the power dynamics work, right? Um, and the reason, of course, that a venture firm wants to put the founder's shares onto some sort of vesting schedule is so the founder doesn't just leave. Um, but, um, you know, the question, your question had to do with the evolution of power dynamics and, uh, and I've had the, I've heard, and I guess we're talking specifically now about co-founders. Um, and over time, uh, co-founders will often start going in slightly different directions, or I've certainly had the experience of bringing somebody on as a co-founder who is a relatively uh, a small minority uh, option holder. And over time, he really became somebody who should be substantially recognized in terms of his equity holdings. And so we had to make an adjustment along the way. And, and that makes sense. Um, and, it, you know, with the, with the pandemic and, and uh, the added stress of working from home, working from anywhere, being confined, uh, trying to relaunch, uh, you know, a number of us have been confronted with companies who are quite normally responding to those events and pivoting. Um, and, you know, unsurprisingly, the power dynamics as between the, the co-founders as between themselves and then as between the, the, the founders and the, the outside investors who are on the board um, are shaken to the core. And, you know, circumstances have changed. And so we're being confronted with a lot of this, um, you know, co-founder uh, friction. And we're seeing a big increase in, in what I call founder divorce, uh, whether it's uh, the founder being thrown out of the company or the two co-founders having, uh, having friction. Um, and, you know, that's really the, the, the nub of, of what we wanted to get after um, today. And, and that can be manifested in, in any number of ways, whether it's deciding the direction of, of the product, uh, deciding where the budget money gets spent, uh, what, what, uh, what paths to go down on in R&D, um, who gets paid what, who gets what equity, uh, whether m and is, is the right answer, and you know, what to do when you're, when you're running on fumes. And um, you know, in my experience, uh, you know, whoever is holding the check 
that folks need to make payroll is going to have a big uh, uh, impact on on what uh, decisions are made. So that kind of sets the stage for the fa- the, the the power dynamics. And, and now I wanted to talk about you know founder breakups and and departures and and you know what what. What is what is there to do um, when? Uh, sorry, I'm I'm resizing the screen here. What is there to do when uh, somebody uh, it's determined uh, wants to move on or needs to move on, or that we need to make space for somebody coming in? And and uh, Brian, uh, happy for you to kind of kick us off and and let's all make this an iterative discussion. And I wanted to remind everyone that there's this Q and A function uh, that Kate is monitoring, and and if you make a question that's directly relevant to what we're talking about. Kate's going to interrupt us and, and uh, raise it. Um, and other, but otherwise, we'll, we'll save them uh, for the end. Uh, Brian, over to you. Yeah, and I, and I think if you just kind of think about this from, from easy to hard, right? This is the, the easy part to think about is, okay, it, it, where do you start if there's a departure? Um, is the equity vested or is it unvested? You know, Brett was kind of giving the story of how he ended up becoming unvested after being vested. <laughs> um, and that's very common uh, and uh, unfortunate, but it happens. And that's just kind of the way, as, as Louis mentioned, the, the, the money dynamics work. Um, but if you are vested, then there is um, a different scenario of how you get stuck back. And it usually costs the company something, something or investors something um, or other founders. But if it's unvested, then the stock, uh, if it's an option, the option just gets canceled. Um, if it's stock and that's been issued and the uh, investor you know, paid you know, maybe par value or some pennies uh, for, then the company needs to exercise its repurchase right and get the stock back, stock back. It's an actual affirmative action that has to be taken because there's a, a deadline usually for that. So if you don't do that, um, you kind of put yourself in a, a worse position in terms of having to now to go back out and negotiate and pay more. And if you don't mind, I'm just going to interrupt, Brian. This is where I see a lot of startups um, falling down is, um, you know, founder leaves. uh, There's some acrimony. There's some, um, frankly, discomfort at addressing the problem and uh, embarrassment at, at bringing it to the attention of of counsel or, or, or not wanting to disturb a delicate situation. And, and usually there's a deadline to repurchase that, that unvested stock. Um, and I see a lot of companies letting that deadline come and go. And then years later, uh, when it's time to do a financing, realizing that those shares are still out there and having to repurchase them. And, and to Brian's point, either having to come out of pocket, having to have a tougher discussion than was otherwise gonna be the case. Uh, and, and so having, uh, you know, a good counsel and, and a, or a good fractional CFO were helping to manage your cap table um, and manage these issues, you know, just very mechanically uh, as and when they arise is, is, um, is really helpful. Sorry for that interruption, Brian, but I, I wanted to share that pro tip for those folks out there who are uh, watching us today. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's actually important. And, and a lot of it isn't um, just discomfort. The truth is when you're small, uh, and you're running fast and taking on six roles instead of one or two, yep. it's easy to let this stuff slide. You're, yep. It's just not front of mind. So even more important than to have some backup, whether it is an equity service, it's your law firm, just 
make sure it's an in-house clerk who's responsible for monitoring all these things and, and setting up deadlines and calendars. Um, you know, make sure that you don't let these sorts of things fall through the cracks because it will cost you money otherwise. Well said, well said. So we, we've got back the uh, unvested shares, but you know, there's probably a lot of vested shares, Brian and, and Brett. Uh, what do we do with those? You've got to negotiate. You got to buy them back. <laughs> <laughs> there's a pound of flesh to be taken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, that's that's a great point. And so I think there are two kind of exits. Um, if you think about diving into a swimming pool, one doesn't make a large splash and it's very smooth, and the other one is a belly flop, uh, which makes a mess everywhere. And it hurts. And hurts. And hurts. hurts a lot. Um, so um, you know. I think the ideal founder breakup leaves the founder as maybe chairman emeritus, uh, somebody who gives some input, uh, still on the board, giving some strategic direction and advice, but standing back and realizing that they don't want to be Margaret Thatcher. Um, and uh, um, that's, I think, the ideal scenario. But, you know, there are some scenarios where it's just too disruptive. There's been too much heartache, too much uh, um, um, bad feeling for uh, that founder to remain with a large equity stake and remain on the board. And so there's a discussion about uh, repurchasing the equity. And obviously, you know, the, 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 sell, the, the founder who's leaving wants to get the fair market value. And, and those that are staying don't want to give a liquidity event to somebody who they, you know, feel badly about. And so it's it's a really delicate thing. There are there are no rules. There are no uh, uh, good answers. And it's uh, it's a it's a really tough negotiation. And you know my advice for folks is to um, try and come at it with a very human you know and try and depersonalize as much as possible. And and may, maybe find one director on the board who can help be a, kind of a referee yeah. um, and, yeah. and guide it to a good solution. I, I think, Brett, you probably have a lot of thoughts here. Well, I was just, <clears throat> I was thinking about how last week we talked about foreign on a valuations. And I was laughing to myself about how there's this funny dynamic where you want your 409A valuation to be as low as possible. Uh, and you want the valuation in your next equity financing to be as high as possible, right? So one one week you're celebrating how the 409A came in really, really low and everybody's excited about that. And the next week you're in a meeting with the VC saying, you know, this company's worth $10 million. Uh, <laughs> and that, yeah. and that um, you know, those two data points that you want to be at opposite ends of the continuum end up often being brought up in discussions regarding, uh, you know, buying out a shareholder uh, because you've got, you know, you got one valuation that says the company is worth a million dollars. And then you've got the last financing that said it was worth $20 million. And obviously whether you're the buyer or the seller, you want to lean toward one or the other. <laughs> um, and, um, uh, and then of course the, the dis, the valuation discrepancy between common shares and 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 the preferred shares is pretty significant. Uh, but I think Louis, you know, you put your finger on it, which is that the key usually to resolving this is to find a, uh, a third person, like a board member, for example, who both sides kind of trust to mediate this and resolve it. Um, you know, that it's in everybody's best interest to make it as smooth as 
possible. Right. And well one said. Of the, well said. One of the interesting dynamics here is um, often um, there is a sense among founders uh, as to who the board favors mm-hmm. um, sure. in an issue. So, so you have to you actually have to think about. Uh, this kind of goes to before you this before you even get too far into discussions, you have to stop and kind of plot this out. Who has the voting rights? Maybe the, maybe you don't have independent directors yet, right? Mm-hmm. This this can happen early, but maybe mm-hmm. you do. Mm-hmm. So who has the voting rights? Who can be influential? Who's going to be seen as the most independent and likely to help out in the discussion? Really, don't start the conversations till you've kind of sat down with someone you trust, figure this out and come up with maybe uh, multiple game plans, plan A, plan B, plan C, because you don't know which way it's going to go. You might have an, an optimal plan, but, but think it through, think who your best allies are and, and then start the conversations. Yeah, that's good. Um, oh, yeah. Well said. Well said. Um, I, I, uh, I also wanted to note that sometimes there is no money to repurchase equity at the time a founder departs. Right. Um, yep. And yep. oftentimes the founder doesn't want to sell at, the, at that point, or there's a near-term exit coming out on the horizon, and we'd all like to know what the fair market value is then. Um, so I, I don't mean to suggest that founder uh, leaves and founder gets uh, founder's equity repurchased. That's not at all um, how it usually goes. In fact, um, usually there's not an equity repurchase. Um, I find that there's some especially interesting scenarios when founders have super voting stock or founder preferred stock, and there they have some some extra leverage uh, upon exit to, uh, to 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 have a better, cleaner landing for themselves. Um, and, and then obviously, you know, the VCs are around the table and they, they, they may, if things are going really well, want to be part of the equity repurchase, but usually not. If you're throwing out the founder, you know, something's going wrong and the VC is probably not feeling like putting some more money in, into the deal. So lots of dynamics here. Right. Um, now, when, when founders are, are controlling large stakes of the common, maybe they control the common vote. Or, or they they have some portion of the common together with some of their allies that that uh, makes it tough. Um, you know, we we have to find ways, creative ways, to uh, reshuffle the cards. And, and so, I think that's what we're getting at with our next bullet point, Brian, here on new issuances and recaps. Sure, sure. Um, and and frankly, new issuances is simply issuing more stock to the people that are staying on board. Um, so if you have a founder with or co-founder with 20% leaving or some, some significant number, um, and you can't get to a solution, uh, you know, one of the things you can do is, um, start granting more options to existing employees to bring their, their numbers up, uh, key employees, um, and then, um, potentially more issuance to the founders or making new co-founders. I mean, someone's got to fill the role that this person is leaving too. So maybe that's someone who's significant, maybe as a key employee, or maybe it's someone so significant, you would make them a co-founder. But you'll go out and you'll just dilute um, the heck, that's a technical term, dilute the heck out of the uh, departing <laughs> co-founder. And, um, but it means doing things like uh, potentially increasing your authorized shares. Uh, so there's filings with the state, you've got have... Uh, potentially increasing your reserve under your plan, your stock plan, 
um, again, another filing with the state, um, making sure you're doing it correctly. So board and shareholder actions that are appropriate. Um, and that all assumes that the departing co-founder doesn't have any uh, either contractual or equity-based blocking rights. A great point. I mean, this really illustrates how, you know, a founder divorce like, like is unfortunately like a chess game. And there are a lot of uh, pieces on the board and that, that can be moved in different ways and that have consequences that are often unanticipated. Um, so, you know, founders may have... Oop, I think we just lost Louis. Uh-oh. So Brian, while while we're waiting for Louis to come back, maybe you could maybe you could talk briefly about um, uh, which of these things require shareholder approval and which ones require board approval and thresholds, because that ends up being a factor too, from my experience. Got it. Yeah, yeah. So you know, if you're doing um, uh, the first one, we'll start with the again the easy ones. The, the first one doesn't really require board action. Um, you know, if it's unvested equity, it gets canceled automatically. Um, the repurchase right is basically the plan's already approved, the grant documents are already approved. There's no further uh, approval needed. Um, wow, Brett, you just got really big on my screen. That's because Louis is gone. Okay. I, I Hopefully everyone him. else is still there. All right, got it. <laughs> um, not complaining, you look great. Uh, but, <laughs> it's the shirt. But, uh, it's the shirt. Um, so that's the easy part. You know, if you're basically doing new issuances and you have to re-up your shares, re-up your plan, uh, that is typically going to be a board and shareholder approval. Yeah. Uh, if you're that's, doing that's, the one I, that's the one I was thinking of, because when you were talking about issuing a bunch of new shares in order to dilute the hell out of yeah. somebody, yeah. you got to make sure that you're, you know, that you're doing that correctly because it's going to come back and bite you in the butt otherwise. Yeah, exactly. If you do that and you don't get the right approvals, you've given the departing co-founder the ability to sue right. Right. Um, right. and actually rescind whatever action you took. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that Chris just Lloyd? to be clear. Yep, he's back. Uh, sorry, guys. I, I don't know what happened. A Zoom snafu. Yeah. Um, I am back and uh, sorry about that. Uh, no problem. Hopefully uh, that we will not happen again. Um, where, where did we leave off? Uh, we got through new issuances. We were just talking about board and shareholder approval, kind of what actions require board and shareholder approval. Um, same with the re- recapitalization, by the way. You yeah, also yeah. Uh, need the appropriate corporate approvals for that. And the point of that, Louis, we were saying is that that keeps the, if you do it right, then you're not opening the company up to a, uh, a lawsuit by the co-founder and a potentially having to rescind whatever actions you took. Well said, well said. Um, you know, and I think the, the remaining items on the, on the page here are, are really designed to show the other you know, chess pieces on the board. Um, so if a founder is in a company, usually that founder is in some sort of an executive role. And if they're departing some sort of a severance, uh, whether it's a lump sum, uh, can, can help uh, kind of grease the wheels of peace. Uh, there can be a COBRA, which is often important with uh, folks that have families, especially, or, or special needs. Um, uh, they can have a consulting agreement so that they're available to answer questions as, as things come along. That, that oftentimes can, uh, can be helpful. Um, there, are, there are the remaining board seats and, and how those get distributed. There are committees and, and how that 
founder is going to be allowed to continue to participate. And I think that the best uh, founder breakups, like any breakup, are done peacefully where everyone has uh, honor and uh, a voice at the table uh, as long as it's constructive. Unfortunately, sometimes that just isn't possible. And, and so uh, shots get fired. Um, uh, so and, that's and what make I sure, want. And to make sure all of this is documented in a separation agreement. Oh, yeah. That's the, oh, other, yeah. That's the other thing I've seen sometimes is, you know, everybody shakes hands and goes their separate ways. Uh, but what they agreed upon wasn't documented. And uh, that's a problem. Yes, and it's funny how people's memories change over time. <laughs> yeah, there's been a, um, I think there's a question or two in there about how to, how do founders keep from getting booted out and taken advantage of by the VCs um, or, or others who have, you know, invested money and now have some sort of voting rights. And, and that's um, a, a good question. And a lot of that comes into play as you grow as a company and you start taking in investments, you may be thinking about, the preferred stock investors, the VCs and, and whoever are negotiating for certain voting rights, certain protections to make sure that their investments are protected, that they get their money out first if there's an acquisition, kind of a, a number of things. From a common stock perspective, you have to make sure that you're taking the same perspective. How do you have blocking rights for certain sorts of actions? Um, if there's M&A, how does the common stock keep the preferred stock from jamming through uh, an acquisition? Um, but, but when it comes to uh, a co-founder being pushed out, um, usually that's not done in just the context of the board deciding they don't like someone. We're kind of talking about it in the context of co-founders falling apart, um, maybe one identifying that the other one's not contributing or one just wants to quit and go do something else because they don't see the future or they've got a better offer. There's a lot of ways this can come up. And so it, it's not um, necessarily always that the VCs are trying to to push someone out and quite often it's the VCs working with another founder to figure out how do we keep the company on track um, because things are kind of coming off the rail. So uh, this is not meant to be a you know, VC perspective or just a founder perspective. It's kind of how do you resolve these issues recognizing that there are multiple parties having a negotiating point and a perspective in this. Yeah, well said. And, and I think there's, a, there's no better uh, leverage than performance and success. And there's no stronger weakness than failure to meet benchmarks, um, friction, going over budget, um, not performing. And, um, you know, I, I always say to, to my clients that, you know, the, the, the best leverage is, is performing. And, and uh, that's really the biggest, uh, I think, variable in every situation. Um, but, but I've also seen it where even when, when uh, the company's hitting it out of the park, uh, personalities can clash and, and uh, things fall apart. Um, I, I would say the most important thing is to check your, your emotions at the door and try and vent those in, in appropriate places. And when you come to the board and you come to the, the C-suite, you do that in, uh, in, in a place where your heart is at peace and you're coming to it with um, a, a, the, the objective of everybody winning and not playing zero sum games. And, and I think that that's um, you know, the, the real um, recipe uh, for success. Um, but as as we you know look down the slide and look at other off ramps, you know, I, I want to talk about more off ramps that where we can help de-escalate or 
you know, find ways to have good uh, founder divorces, Brian. And, and so we talked about severance agreements and, and board seats, but um, tell me about voting and information rights. You know, what, what, what's your point here? Sure. So I think um, starting with kind of information rights, I think from a co-founder's perspective, who's been there from the beginning, he's put his heart, his or her heart and soul into this. Um, and for whatever reason, it doesn't really matter. They're moving on. Um, and, um, but they still have equity. They still have a perspective on, on the company's product. Um, those emotions don't just turn off overnight. Uh, and they have a financial interest and quite often just a um, emotive interest in it, emotional interest in it. So um, quite often uh, a co-founder will negotiate uh, for some sort of regular updates. Um, as a, in California, uh, if you've been issued shares under the plan, um, as Louie knows, you have certain rights at the end of each year uh, that quite often many companies don't uh, comply with. Uh, with respect to the participants, but you may want a quarterly update. Um, I've seen deals where uh, the the new CEO uh, meets from time to time with the old departed CEO, and um, it's more of an informational session. Um, you can negotiate for specific things like quarterly financials. The preferred stock investors are typically getting quarterly financials. Maybe you're gonna get quarterly financials. The, the danger there for the company is you do need the co-founder to move on to some extent. Um, and uh, they're no longer calling the shots. They no longer uh, are running the company or running a department. So um, there's a balance to be struck there, but I, I think it's important to recognize that co-founders um, were doing this because they were, they loved it. It was their baby too. Um, and it, again, it doesn't just turn off overnight. So finding some sort of uh, sharing of information, whether it's just financials, or whether it's uh, an update as to you know how the product is doing. Maybe it's you know the, the person who actually was most responsible for driving product development. Um, on voting, uh, voting is interesting because what you don't want, particularly a co-founder who leaves and has a significant uh, uh, block of shares, to be able to uh, block significant transactions. And so, quite often, what you'll see being done is the, the departing co-founder is aligning their shares maybe with a um, remaining founder who has a large common stock block too and so that they're kind of voting in agreement. And these voting and information rights can kind of go hand in hand because it gives the co-founder that's departing a little more comfort uh, as they give over voting rights as to what, um, what's going on at the company. Um, it's, it's hard to keep the co-founder uh, in place uh, or, or moving on with a, a block on significant transactions. Um, that's a hard swallow for the, the VCs, and it should be a hard swallow for the remaining founders. Uh, but sometimes that happens. Wow, those are uh, really great points, um, Brian. And, and I want to extrapolate the, the issue of in, information rights in light of one of the questions we got in the Q&A from John Gregg. And John, thank you for the question. Um, and, and that is, how do you enforce information rights in a Delaware company? And there is a statute uh, under the Delaware General Corporation Law that uh, many of you are familiar with called 220. And it, and it sets forth the procedures you have to follow uh, to obtain those the, the information that you're seeking. And, and importantly, it has to be for a proper purpose. 
So it can't be used for competitive enterprise. It can't be used uh, uh, for uh, control purposes. It really has to be for um, you know, investment management purposes. Um, and, and I am seeing uh, a lot of um, uh, issues around 220 these days as companies navigate the, uh, the new normal and uh, they've raised money at a pretty high valuation uh, in the last round and investors are pissed. Uh, the company hasn't performed and they want to know why. And uh, they, you know, take their guns out and point them at the direction of the company, the founders, the board, uh, anybody, and they say, I want information. And, you know, that has to be, that request needs to comply with, if you're a Delaware Corporation uh, 220 of the DGCL. And, it, you know, if you want that request to be successful, it's got to be, it's got to be raised in, a, in an appropriate way. Um, so, you know, a lot of us out there are seeing these kinds of disputes, uh, not only among founders, but among investors and founders uh, about, about information rights and, and about voting rights and about, you know, whether they're safe or their convertible note was properly converted into preferred shares and whether uh, they know how many preferred shares they have. Uh, many companies, as we, as we all have seen, are, are, are putting their cap tables up in the cloud uh, using a service like Carta or captable.io or one of the many others and uh, don't know how to log in, don't know how to use them, don't know how to um, understand you know, that they, they have what they, they should have. And so uh, I think we're seeing a lot of um, interesting uh, uh, disputes uh, arise uh, in, in, in those um, subjects. Um, I wanted to finally talk about exit rights as, it, as if you're a founder and you're leaving um, and you're not getting your equity repurchased, you know, a lot of the times what you're really going to want is the company to go and get sold. And oftentimes the public will think that if a founder is leaving a company that that company has failed or is for sale. And so I think that there's a moment in time after a founder leaves where either there needs to be really strong new management that comes in, uh, or you've got to really guide uh, to a quick, smooth uh, exit that, that hopefully isn't a fire sale, but sometimes it is. And, and I'd love to hear from you, Brett and Brian, about your uh, war stories of, of uh, what happens next uh, into exit when, when a founder leaves. Brett, you want to dive in? Yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm trying to think. I don't think I have any war stories about that particular scenario. Um, yeah. Brian, do you? Yeah, so a, a couple come to mind. Um, sure. One is uh, back when I was in-house and we were buying companies, but um, the, you know, I, I've seen it where while doing our diligence, uh, the the founders have a breakup. And, and frankly, it's because there's money on the table there is a potential exit and the whole issue of what one person perceives as unfairness in the slip comes to the fore yep. or, you know, the issue can be, and it wasn't in this case, but the issue can be where the, at least one of them doesn't want to be part of the go forward. And I can just tell you when you're an acquirer and you're buying a company and you're buying the team and uh, the business I was in, we were buying teams one of those team members of that team, a key member, 
says, <laughs> I want to go do something different. I've been doing this for eight, nine years, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, those deals have high potential to just come off the rails. Uh, sure. uh, so, so those become very difficult. Um, the, the other one is, uh, and kind of comes to light here uh, in the Valley, which is, you know, the, the potential to have to go out and tell the acquirer. So this company is already in the process. It's starting, starting to put itself out there. It's, you know, got a banker. And what happens now when you've got the split, uh, a co-founder has departed and now it becomes um, unfortunately a talking point in every discussion as the bankers are out there with the deck having to explain this. So um, selling a company is, unless, you know, well, I'll just say selling a company is hard um, and it's hard for all the people involved, including the bankers. So we're out there trying to get the initial interest. So now you've got right now a, a situation where the bankers have to go out and explain what just happened and um, give the potential acquirers who haven't even seen anything more than a deck so far enough comfort that they're going to spend the time and money to go do due diligence and put in an initial bid. Well said. And really, that's just what I'm going at here is um, for, for founders out there and boards out there, um, a founder divorce, uh, there's nothing that makes an exit tougher. Um, and I think if you're, if you're going to do a founder, uh, divorce, you're going to have to have a real strong, uh, reboot with a, a new management team or with the remaining founders, or you're going to have to navigate to exit, um, quickly and methodically, uh, with a good story around, uh, you know, the, the founder change. And, and I think that, um, it, you know, it, it goes to show that it's really important to preserve these relationships, e even when they get frayed, that they, you're going to have to work together to get to exit. And if you don't, you're de destroying value. And, and uh, that's what I just hate to see in these processes. And so for all of you out there, uh, please remember the long term. Um, so I, I think we've beaten up this, uh, this slide pretty hard. Um, and uh, I, I wanted to talk about a different scenario than the founder divorce, and that's just how things change over time. And we talked about it a little bit uh, in a prior slide where we talked about fact patterns and, and power dynamics. But um, Brett and Brian, I, 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 and I, I think, Brett, you've even shared a story already. Um, but just how, tell us how things change. You've got two founders, three founders, and at the outset, maybe one of them's got the idea and, and the money and the other one, the other ones are coming along for the ride, but maybe two, three years down the road, it's, you know, it's the CTO who's really driving, uh, you know, product development, or it's the CRO who's driving sales. Um, you know, tell, tell me about how do you deal with the, the adjustment of the importance of everyone's role over time? Well, people work for two reasons, right? They work for money and recognition. Those are the two things that, that motivate people. Uh, and in some respects, the money is kind of the easy part and that you can always adjust salaries. Um, but when somebody feels un, under-recognized, um, you know, that's a problem. And this is typically, in my experience, what happens with founder disputes is that, um, you know, you go into it, the three founders all excited, you know, drinking pitchers of beer, talking about the amazing things you're going to do together. Um, and you decide, you know what, we'll just, we'll split the equity three ways because all three of us are awesome. Um, and, you know, then you get a year or two down the road and typically one or two of the three founders 
uh, feels like they're carrying most of the weight, um, you know, and, and that other guy isn't showing up all that often. Um, and so they start to feel as if they're under-recognized in the sense that they've got a third of the equity, but they're doing more than a third of the work. <laughs> I mean, this is a fairly typical scenario in terms of the way in which founder disputes play out. And I had the experience uh, many years ago of, of having, <clears throat> I was, you know, I was in my I guess, late 20s, started a company with another guy. And one of the things I realized about a year or two into it is that um, he didn't really need to work for a living. He'd already made plenty of money before we started the company. Um, and I definitely needed to work for a living. <laughs> and so, you know, I was doing the 80 hour weeks that one has to do and one has a startup. And, you know, he was doing 30 hour weeks and taking a lot of vacations because he wasn't really working for money per se. You know, and that led to some, um, led to some disharmony. Um, and I think the overall advice I would give on this stuff is, as, as the two of you have already pointed out, is better to have these discussions sooner rather than later. You know, don't, don't let it fester. Um, and, uh, and, and try to come to you know, re recognizing the fact that what motivates one person is different than what motivates another person. Try to sort of empathize with that, acknowledge it, and figure out a way to create something that uh, that matches what drives each individual. Uh, CB Insights did a did a study last year where they looked at um, uh, I think it was over two hundred startups that had died, uh, and they did a post mortem on on why these startups had died, uh, and interviewed the founders. And nearly twenty percent of the startups died because of founder disharmony. Um, that's, you know, that's, that's pretty significant. And so, you know, if, so that's a risk factor, it's a 20% risk factor when you start a company. And so everything you can do to mitigate that risk at the beginning improves the odds of the startup being a success. Well said, Brian, um, I know you've got a lot of experience in, uh, how to adjust things over time. Talk to me. Well, I would just say that that's really kind of daunting. 20% is the, just the founder risk, uh, disharmony. The other 80% is execution. Um, <laughs> it's like, okay, tough odds. Um, so I, I would just say that kind of when you think about there are, there are scenarios where the changes can be really good. So you know, your first point here, Louie, which is, you know, bringing on the, the C-suite. Quite often that happens because the company's scaling up and the skills you had as a founder don't always match what a company needs to really get to the next level. If you're doing five or 10 ARR um, and you're, you've got a pathway to the next hundred, um, that, that might involve whole different set of skills, either as a CEO, uh, as the head of marketing, um, business development, you know, what have you, sales, then, then the founders who are on board. So there are positive scenarios where it still hurts to be the founder and effectively losing that key role. And maybe if you've got the, um, the flexibility and the ego that can handle it, you move into an alternative role, um, whether it's, uh, as an employee or as an advisor, still serving on the board, as Louis was alluding to earlier, um, all of that's great. But you know, they have to now bring in people who also require equity uh, for compensation. So you're going to see people coming in, a new CEO who comes in, and you know maybe they get 
5%, maybe they get more, um, uh, you're going to be diluted. Um, and so, you know, the trick is figuring out where you need protection against dilution and also where the dilution actually can be a positive because at the end of the day, a smaller piece of a bigger pie is of course, you know, the old story better than a bigger piece of a very small pie. Um, and so you got to kind of think about it that way. Uh, the depends on what kind of pie. Yeah, it depends on the pie. Exactly. <laughs> I, I've never been big for mincemeat pie. Um, well, I, I would just like to finish by saying that, um, you know, good advisors uh, can help founders uh, address these issues over time. It needs to be done sensitively. Um, it is normal that people's relative contributions are going to change over time. And it's also normal that they get adjusted, but everybody's got to come to the table with a company first, you know, success of the company mentality. And, and then their, their own personal interest needs to, to come second um, and it needs to be addressed and everybody's got to be sensitive to, you know, the, the roles of everyone else. But, you know, good advisors have a lot of tools to fix this, whether it's, you know, as we've said on the, on the, on the table, on the page here, whether it's a new stock grant, salary, bonus, commission, whether it's a, an M&A carve-out plan that, that gives some extra shares to, to folks uh, uh, around the hoop, uh, it can be redistributing uh, shares. So lots of solutions uh, and good advisors can help you uh, map it out. I, I, um, I know we're, we're running out of time, but I, I wanted to talk about how this can get, this can play out in, in M&A. And, um, you know, both of you, please uh, jump over me if I talk too much, but I'm going to quickly just try and hit this. A strategic buyer uh, and a financial buyer are very different. A financial buyer, a private equity firm comes in and they need a management team. Now, maybe they can drop in a CEO or a CFO, but they're, they're looking for uh, to acquire both the team and the, the intellectual property and the product. A strategic buyer, they might be just happy to have the product and let the team you know, go, although usually they'll want you to stick around for at least a year, two years, three years, four years, uh, and, and they'll sometimes make you revest. Um, but but uh, it, it's a time for founders to, you know, reassess where they're at and what their level of commitment is. And a financial buyer is really going to need you to stick around and a strategic buyer less so. Um, a minority recap, uh, you know, a, an investor can come in and, and inject in a lot of money and do a recap, which, which might facilitate uh, the exit of a founder. So that's, you know, something that can happen. Uh, a carve out plan, as we've said, is, is something that can benefit some folks uh, off the top. Uh, to give them some some extra juice for for what they've done, there's also a, you know a new retention plan that can help a, a founder who's stuck around despite uh, an an old founder having departed uh, and taken some of the juice out. So in other words, uh, some juice can be taken out of the. Uh, the, uh, the 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 entity that's being sold and put into the into the new company that's that's post closing and then finally you know a business can be restructured in a hundred different ways to Sunday uh, to redistribute um, you know economic value according to uh, where it's currently perceived so M um, and A is is uh, and sometimes the answer to some of these um, 
uh, founder disputes. Um, finally, um, you know, before we wrap up and turn it over to the Q and A, um, Brett and Brian would love to hear your thoughts about you know what happens after the divorce. And you know, I just want to start off by repeating what I said before, which is that folks have to get along as until you get to an exit, uh, you all need each other. Um, and whether it's to raise capital, to sell the business, to message to the market that what's happened is not fatal, uh, and to continue to evangelize the, the, the product or, or the technology and how it's going to disrupt how things are done and, and uh, why, why you're there. Um, so turning it over to you gentlemen to, to share your experiences about you know, best practices for what happens after the divorce. Well, once, <clears throat> once again, I think you want to think this through and have a separation agreement. Um, you know, things like a you know, non-disparagement clause are typical in separation agreements that, you know, this the exiting co-founder won't go, won't go around saying nasty things about the company. Um, but, you know, better than the stick is to have the carrot always, right? So, in other words, what you really want is for the exiting co-founder to be incented to be helpful, say good things about the company, make introductions um, as appropriate, et cetera. And you know, all of that can be outlined in, in separation agreement. You can give them additional upside by saying, uh, if we beat certain th sales thresholds in the next two years, you'll, um, you'll get a share of that, right? That's a nice way to incent them to be out there saying good things and making introductions. Um, so I guess that's my thought on this is just that, you know, um, you don't want a co-founder going away bitter and being a pain in your side. You want a co-founder going away, starting fresh, um, and having a solid incentive why they should continue to help build the company that they have, that they still have some equity in. Yeah, I, I would actually just second that. It, it's the more you can uh, focus on the reward, the carrot, um, as opposed to being in a situation where you have to point at a legal clause um, to go back to the founder. Uh, it is, you know, you're already starting off in a hold-in. Um, so um, if you're an existing founder and you can keep that co-founder as an ally, um, particularly if you think about it just from voting blocks, keeping that co-founder who's retaining some of their shares as an ally um, is a good thing, both from, um, you know, shareholder voting perspective, but also if that person is uh, retaining their seat on the board. Um, the common stock, you know, people always, <coughs> you know, there's a lot of uh, kumbaya moments you can have around how everyone has to get along in the company. But at the end of the day, the VCs come in with a perspective, the common stock, because they're putting a lot of money on the line, the common stock founders have a perspective. And quite often there's an attempt at the board level to maintain some balance, at least for some period of time, until the amount of money coming into the company just uh, doesn't make it sense, doesn't make sense anymore to, to keep a, you know, a, a blocking right for the common. But um, if that person is staying on the board, then being able to work together with them means on the departure, you've, you've found a way to work together. Um, so kind of as, as Brett said, trying to keep it positive, trying to find rewards, trying to keep people motivated and see, as Louis said, the long game, you know, the long game is for everyone to make money. You make money because you get the company to an exit or uh, of some kind uh, successfully. Um, thanks so much, everyone. I, I, I know we've got just a limited amount of time, but I, I, I definitely wanted to uh, address um, whatever Q&A that we have in the queue. And, and Kate, uh, why don't you take us through it? 
Sure. So first question we have is, um, I own 100 of the startup today. I invited three people and gave the co-founder status. Uh, nothing yet on paper, no cap table. One of these people is not contributing value. I wanted to couple from him altogether. Do I need to write a separation agreement when there is a zero extent agreement employee or co-founder status? Great question. Always have a separation agreement. I think Brett said it multiple times. Uh, when the, uh, the, you know, a great example was a, a self-driving car company in San Francisco that I won't name that might uh, rhyme with bruise uh, and might have sold to a, a big Detroit car company that might uh, uh, rhyme with BM. Uh, that company had a co-founder, uh, well, a purported co-founder raise his or her hand uh, after the sale got announced and before it closed and demanded a lot of money. And uh, the world doesn't know what the settlement was. I don't know what the settlement was, but everything went quiet, which usually means uh, there was a settlement. Um, so you, you always want to have a, a separation agreement with a, anybody that has had any affiliation with the company, whether or not documented uh, or not. Uh, so good question. Next. Another question that we have is, uh, what should you do if the founder leaving doesn't want to sell back best shares at reasonable price? Uh, Brian, you want to take that one? Well, I, I think we touched on that um, earlier in the slides too. It's, yeah. You know, you have the options for uh, new grants, new issuances to dilute the um, the exiting co-founder. You've got recapitalizations. There's a number of uh, tools that can be pulled out here. Um, they just need to get with your advisor and kind of work through them. Yes, Law get a good lawyer. <laughs> What's next, Kate? Uh, so next we have a series of questions from one participant. Um, first one is, how do founders protect their interests from VCs who might want to take their equity by ensuring that shares are invested and then terminating them without cause with no double trigger? Um, well, uh, I, I, think, um, I think that's an interesting point. So founders remember that in a venture-backed company, they usually have shares that vest over four years with a one-year cliff. And that vesting starts from when the project started and um, there's some stake in the ground where they can demonstrate that to the VC. So um, typically I don't see uh, VCs funding companies in their first year very often. Uh, so stock usually is fairly well vested uh, by the time they come in. And so they, they cannot um, simply fire someone without cause. Um, it, 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 the double trigger to the play if the company is acquired. And so um, if the company hasn't been acquired and, and, uh, and you get terminated, there, there is no acceleration of vesting. Um, you're, you're just... Uh, SOL, which uh, is, is unfortunate. Um, for founders that are looking for real leverage uh, against VCs, you know, I would say don't raise money from VCs. Um, you know, if you want to be in control and you don't want to answer to anybody, uh, you know, you're going to have to be bootstrapped. Um, you know, answer number two is um, you're going to have to have super voting stock, uh, which essentially guarantees your, your control of the company uh, for as long as uh, you don't need somebody else's money. Uh, but in my experience, um, you know, super voting stock is, is perfectly fine until a venture capitalist comes along and says, if you want my money, you'll have to waive that. 
And uh, that's when that happens. And if you need the money, you'll take it and waive it. And if you don't need the money, then you won't. Um, and, and so uh, that's uh, generally, you know, how you uh, protect yourself. Third, and I, I said this before, but perform. Uh, there, there is no uh, better uh, recipe for success in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, any company than performance. And, you know, your venture capitalists are not evil uh, people that are looking to install their friends. They're looking to make money. And if you're performing, uh, you're, you're going to be left in place. Now, performance doesn't just mean you know, financial performance, but there has to be cohesity within the team. And so if you know, there's a lot of uh, stress in the C-suite and you have a revolt underneath you, uh, even if you're performing, that won't save you. Um, so those are some of my thoughts on, on the subject. Brian or Brett, anything to add? No, I think that was comprehensive. Oh, I've, 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 I frequently said the same thing. That the, you know, one of the most common questions I get is, how do I raise a whole bunch of venture capital and not give up any control? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. you know, I... <laughs> but I also no. say what, Lu, what Louis just said, which is, you know, the best way to keep your job is to keep doing a great job. You know, if you're doing a great job, you're not going to be ousted. So focus yeah. on that. Focus on that. Kate, next question. Another uh, question from this series is, uh, if 409A valuations are not conducted properly, the whole stock option program can be invalidated with, with liability to the equity owners. This can be cured by a tax deductible you know, for the VCs recategorization uh, re 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 of the options as uh, phantom stock appreciation rights, which gives adverse tax consequences to the founders and benefits VC investors. How can founders protect themselves against these types of situation? Um, so I think the question more succinctly is, how do you make sure that your 409A valuation is solid such that it doesn't get unwound? And uh, the, the statute um, uh, in, under the Internal Revenue Code, or, or the rule, I should say, under the Internal Revenue Code is, is, uh, is what you have to live by. And, and that's that it's a third party uh, firm and that they use the traditional methods of evaluation, which typically include uh, discounted cash flow. Um, it, it includes um, uh, comparable company valuations. It includes um, uh, public company uh, trading statistics that are that are relevant and, and um, you know sales of, of similarly situated companies. Finally, in a 409A that's that's well done, there is some correlation between uh, the total value of the company and then what the preferred gets and what the common gets in that total valuation and the preferred and the it, it, the, the the kind of market um, uh, used to be that that the common would be worth 25 cents of each, 25% uh, of each share of preferred. And um, I think that given uh, the very founder friendly environment that we've been in over the last 10 years, um, that number of 25% has moved towards 33% and sometimes 40%. So making sure that your 409A valuation of the common is in the strike zone of, of uh, what is normal, I think is, is, is um, something that, uh, will protect uh, a good 49A valuation uh, from being attacked. And then finally is if there's been a major transaction since your last 49A valuation or just a change in circumstance, whatever, if there's a reason not to rely on it, don't. 
you know, there are lots of people out there that can help you uh, get a new 409A valuation, even in the midst of a transaction that is uh, brewing, but not yet uh, consummated, that has probability attached to it, or, or frankly, risk. Uh, and, and so that, that's my advice on that question. Brett or, or Brian, anything to add? Good news is 409A valuations are pretty cheap these days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm serious. And the, yeah. yeah. And, and if you're a subscriber to Carta or one of those other services, yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, they'll just, you'll pay a little more for, for the service, but they'll, they'll add that on. And uh, right. it's exactly. an easy way to just regularly get the, um, the, the valuation done. Right. So Louis, I'm thinking we should let everybody uh, get on with their day. What do you think? Um, thanks everyone for joining. Um, for those of you who didn't get your questions answered, please don't, don't hesitate to uh, reach out on the screen. You'll see contact details. We will be circulating the slides. And as always, uh, the very awesome Kate will post the full recording on, on YouTube. And uh, please feel free to share it. Uh, and and uh, I want to thank uh, Brian, Brett, and, and um, for, for joining, and, and even to Nicole, who couldn't join, uh, for helping us put all this together, and I'll, 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 the, the very always awesome Kate. Thanks, everyone. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Thanks all. very much. Thank you. Okay. Bye. See, see you guys.